Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubhanga, Malan and Shweta. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So our big stories in this edition are how the Pandora Papers are being reported on in South Asia and the unfolding humanitarian and healthcare crisis in Afghanistan. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we're talking about how the military coup in Myanmar has impacted civil society organizations, Pakistan's startup scene, an evidence bill being presented in the Maldives impinging on freedom of expression, and the killing of a leading Rohingya activist in Bangladesh. Let's begin with the Pandora Papers. As you all know, the Pandora Papers dominated all the headlines last week in the world and in South Asia. It was dubbed as one of the biggest leaks of financial documents that detailed the secret wealth and dealings of some 35 current and former leaders and a number of public officials. Um, there were some South Asian governments who promised to probe the revelations. If you look at the investigation, the ICIJ uh, or the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, they were coordinating with the uh, simultaneous reporting from 150 media outlets in 117 countries. Um, and they had started back in November 2020 to analyze the 11.9 million records. So since most of the revelations have now become public knowledge, uh what we instead want to do in this podcast is to is to look at how it was discussed and reported in the region's mainstream media malan you've been looking at pakistan right so how has the media been reporting the papers you know in pakistan yeah so uh in pakistan the icij the icij's partner was uh, the news international the reporting of the story across all media outlets was quite similar um now when the news broke uh, prime minister imran khan responded by saying that he um, he had formed a high powered cell to investigate the 700 pakistani citizens named in the leaks now since khan was one of the first south asian leaders to respond to the pandora papers his statement was reported in almost all the major news outlets in the region um some news articles also compared imran khan's reaction to the previous panama papers 5 years back uh, which saw his uh, political rival nawaz sharif uh, implicated um so most reporting pointed out uh, the irony that out of the 700 who are named some are closely linked to khan uh, which includes members of his cabinet as well and what about india um, they had quite a large number of people implicated as well right yeah that's right so the icij's investigation linked to india by the indian express noted over 300 plus indian names and the offshore holdings of over 60 prominent individuals companies former members of parliament and government officials so far prominent indian names revealed include Reliance ADAG's head Anil Ambani, cricketer Sachin Tendulkar, the sister of fugitive businessman Nirav Modi, and the husband of Biocon founder Kiran Mazumdar Shah, with more names to be made public in the coming days. And meanwhile, the recent coverage, media coverage around the Pandora Papers in India, centers around the government's promise to begin investigations into the leak. 
And according to a statement by the finance ministry, they've stated that because only a few Indian names have been named in the paper so far, the ministry said that the phased disclosures from the Pandora papers appearing in the media will be monitored through a multi-agency group and claimed that the government will be engaging with foreign jurisdictions to obtain relevant taxpayer information. So um, there were a few interesting things in the Nepali press as well, um, which mostly focused around the 16 nationals whose name came up uh, in the Pandora papers uh, and the business groups that you know these people are associated with. Um, and no politicians um, in, in the list of names. So the reporting itself was led by the Kathmandu-based non-profit Center for Investigative Journalism, CIJN, um, in collaboration with the ICIJ. And this is a model that CIJN has followed you know, for the last many years in, in doing some of the most important investigative stories in Nepal. Often the reporters themselves are actually employees of other news organizations, uh, which was also the case this time around. Um, and the stories are produced by the CIJN and then published on their website. Um, and then some other portals, um, you know, republish them, presumably with their permission. So that was the model this time too. Um, but what I found interesting was that uh, Kantipur Daily, which is uh, probably Nepal's largest circulating newspaper, they're also listed as, as a media partner from Nepal um, on the ICIJ website. But you wouldn't know that from just reading the reporting. So... What's true is that some of their reporters were working with um, CIJN for this particular project, um, but there was nothing distinct about Kantipur's reporting itself, which was, you know, limited to a story on the business section of the paper. Um, on their website itself, along with that story, they linked um, a few stories from the CIJN website, a few more detailed pieces. So I found that interesting. Um, but I think it also raises some important questions about you know, how much investment there is and what kind of infrastructures there are within um, the country's media's organizations for doing such work. Because um, if you need to rely on global collaborations, which are, you know, by their nature occasional, um, how much, you know, can you do stories that are much more national and where you don't have this kind of global support? Yeah, that's quite interesting, Shubhanga. Um, now in Sri Lanka, News of the Pandora Papers was kind of met with indifference and there were even people tweeting that powerful people being corrupt was hardly breaking news. There was also some discussion about um, that how there was this factual error in the story written by the ICIJ staff on the date of origin of Sri Lanka's civil war, which is a bit of a doomed project to try to talk about the origin of conflict because you could just keep going back in time. Um, but this discussion did actually end up derailing talk about the actual contents of the report, which implicated a former MP and her husband, who are closely related to the Rajapaksas. I believe, actually, that uh, Nirupama Rajapaksa is the president's niece. Didn't Andrakumara Disanayaka also say something about their connection to the Rajapaksas in the parliament? Yeah, he actually specifically mentioned the previous regime. Mm. So he mentioned both Basil Rajapaksa and uh, UNP MP Ranil Vikramasinghe as well by name. And his comments, you know, and where he basically spoke about their links to this uh, couple, this was covered in the media. But it was quite telling that uh, he actually played down the president's connection to the couple. You know, I think it's a bit of a arbitrary distinction to make to say you know, because they're all siblings 
Um, so yeah. it's a bit uh, silly to say that, you know, one sibling is not, not as close to them as the rest. But there was also this very powerful editorial in the Daily FT, which highlighted um, public apathy towards corruption. And it spoke about how, you know, when the previous government, the coalition government led by Maitripala Sirisena, when he didn't deliver, uh, members of the Rajapaksa family uh, were actually voted in again in 2019, despite being unseated in 2015 due to uh, corruption. So it kind of shows that people have short-term memories when it comes to these issues, even though they, you know, turn elections. Um, and the state-run daily news actually focused on the president's order to the bribery commission to conduct an investigation into the allegations made by Pandora Papers. But on Twitter, uh, there were several people who pointed out, including the few, uh, former human rights commissioner, that the president shouldn't be able to order supposedly independent commission to conduct investigations. Yeah. And um, some of them even said that appealing to the commission was just another way to bypass judicial process. Um, and they pointed to a long history of government commissions with no consequences for wrongdoers um, as evidence for that. But meanwhile, there's a humanitarian and health crisis unfolding in Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. Shweta, could you give us the latest on that? Sure, Raisa. So, international aid groups have warned that the healthcare system in Afghanistan is on the edge of collapse. With thousands of healthcare facilities, they've run out of essential medicines and Afghan doctors haven't been paid in months. Now, after the Taliban takeover, the country has been plunged into an economic and financial crisis. International donors, including World Bank, EU, and IMF, froze fundings for new projects, including $600 million in healthcare aid. And the Biden administration has also frozen Afghanistan's central bank assets that are held in the U.S. While the U.S. is granting two licenses allowing various groups to provide humanitarian assistance to the country, without access to foreign reserves and funds, the interim government in Kabul can't finance vital food imports. And given that recognition from the international community seems elusive at the moment, this crisis indicates just how quickly basic services can unravel as international donors struggle with distributing aid without placing funds in the hands of the Taliban. And this is happening while 18 million Afghans, more than half the population in the country, are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. Yeah. And um, I think this question of international recognition, you know, continues to be a significant hurdle, um, even though the Taliban government has been making some attempts to to kind of address that. So um, in late September, they actually sought a seat at the UN's General Assembly, um, which was eventually turned down. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that over the last few years, Taliban has had a pretty thick engagement with, you know, various governments around the world um, as part of their talks uh, in Doha. Um, and some of this, you know, even included trips to places like Uzbekistan, Iran, Russia, Turkmenistan, um, China and Pakistan. But all the governments, it seems, including those that they were dealing closely with, are much more cautious now and will, you know, likely significantly impede their um, efforts to raise funds. Right. And actually, this kind of uh, topic of, you know, international recognition and 
the impact of sanctions was actually part of this discussion uh, which happened at a webinar which was held recently organized by the Pakistan India People's Forum for Peace and Democracy and it included panelists from Afghan civil society who are still in Kabul so uh, Mahbuba Siraj from the Afghan Women Network spoke very powerfully about how the country was on a fast train to destruction she called it due to this just lack of urgency in recognizing this rapidly emerging humanitarian crisis due to a lack of funds and she said there needed to be a distinction drawn between money released for governance and money released in order to meet the urgent needs of civilians including for food and medicine she also condemned countries like pakistan and more recently tajikistan for allowing you know geopolitical considerations to prevail even during this unfolding crisis um there was also uh, some very interesting insight from the former urban advisor to afghanistan from india pushpa patak who kind of gave an overview of how humanitarian aid decreased since 2009 as foreign troops presence decreased on the ground and she also spoke about how so far there's been about 1.2 billion dollars pledged for humanitarian assistance in afghanistan but there's a lot of skepticism about how that money is going to actually reach people in need of urgent assistance and in fact whether they'll even be able to reach people and um how that money is going to be used So in this sense she actually said that South Asian civil society has a role to play in advocating for continued funding to reach people in urgent need irrespective of the government in place. And now moving on to our next segment around South Asia in 5 minutes. Thanks Raisa. So let's start with Myanmar where the civil society is going through a period of serious crisis you know as was expected after many months of crackdown by the military government um a recent survey of civil society groups in the country actually found that you know nearly 1/5 of the surveyed groups had closed down and 16% had suspended their activities which basically means that you know civic society activities have shrunk by over a third um of course the situation is much worse for uh, people and individuals working on democracy and civil liberties um over 100 of of uh, their members are in military detention at the moment uh, and uh, further restrictions in law and more surveillance is also expected one interesting point um that i read from a recent report is that while you know civil society groups have been involved in health social services educational sectors basically kind of activities seen as being apolitical you know even during the military regime it seems that the military is keen on institutions like the monasteries to be more involved in these uh, service provisions over in bangladesh one of the most well known community leaders to highlight the suffering of rohingya refugees teacher and activist mohibullah was killed in a camp in cox's bazar on september 29 the bangladeshi government has so far arrested five rohingya in connection with the killing and they've said they were probing links to an armed group now mohibullah's family has said that they believe the arakan rohingya salvation army which is a group behind several attacks in myanmar to be behind the killing as they were enraged by his growing popularity and they've also said they've received 
death threats for identifying um, Arsa as the potential killers. Meanwhile, this group actually contends that it was unidentified criminals who were responsible. So there's some good news from Pakistani tech industry um, that is experiencing exponential growth in 2021. Um, so far, Pakistani startups have secured at least $240 million in investment in 2021 alone, compared to the $66 million raised in 2020. Now, among the startups, there is uh, Bazaar, a B2B online platform for grocery store owners in, of Karachi. Credit Book, an app to help small businesses uh, digitize their bookkeeping, and Abi, an online platform that allows employees to access their earned wages before their payroll date. Um, while this is good news, uh, it will be interesting to see how this will unfold and what the future of Pakistani tech will be, especially given that some of the uh, global tech giants uh, threatened to leave Pakistan over new regulations on social media and the internet just last year. Over in the Maldives on the 28th of September, journalist organizations and NGOs in the Maldives issued a statement calling for authorities to drop new provisions of the proposed evidence bill, which is currently being debated in Parliament. The provisions in the Article 136 of the evidence bill would empower courts to demand journalists and media outlets to reveal their sources if the court determines that the public interest of revealing a journalist's source outweighs the negative impact to the sources. Now, the statement noted that the vague language of the proposed provisions also leaves room for intimidation and harassment of journalists and their sources, who will be deterred from speaking the truth. And now it's time for our culture segment, Bookmarked. Thanks, Shweta. And um, let's begin with a bit of good news um, for journalists around the world, but especially two journalists, um, Maria Ressa, founder of the news website Rappler, uh, which is based in Philippines, and Dmitry Muratov, um, who is the editor of Novaya Gazeta, a newspaper based in Russia. The two were awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace last week, and I quote, for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. Um, that's according to the Nobel Committee, um, but I think it's it's a great news for um, it's great news that you know the Nobel Committee recognized working journalists, particularly those working in independent media outfits, places that kind of focus on investigative reporting and scrutinize their governments. And um, it's also worth noting that the Norwegian politician that nominated Maria Ressa um, mentioned that she was both a symbol and representative of thousands of journalists around the world. Um, so I think it's a great news, uh, you know, especially following the um, solid reporting we saw after the Pandora Papers. Yeah. So uh, if you guys haven't been living under a rock for the last few months, uh, you would have surely heard uh, Manike Magenite by <laughs> Yohani. Now, currently the song is taking the world by a storm. Uh, the song has nearly 150 million views on YouTube. It has been covered a million times by other singers from around the region. I think... I first came across uh, Johanny when she covered uh, Panas in Hesse by uh, Dushant Viraman, which is one of my favorite songs. Um, and I think it was her cover of uh, uh, Drill Team's Devyange Bare, which kind of put her on the radar, especially her, her rap uh, in it. Um, so what do you guys think? My own feeling was that it's uh, 
and maybe the you know why it might have been so popular is that the it's a nice simple kind of memorable tune um i don't know the lyrics so you guys can can say more about it but what i do know is i regret not doing a a nepali language version of it and and missing the boat on some <laughs> some global popularity so <laughs> yeah i think um like you said marlan it was her cover of drill team which kind of made her gain some kind of recognition within sri lanka like before manike mage hitte went viral because um people realized that she could rap and i think she got this nickname of rap princess after that song kind of went viral but at the same time you know and it, this is something we see that uh, in general with women who take up you know space as public figures even as she got more popular she also faced a lot of like online harassment which she also yeah. talks and sings about um you know in her debut single mm. aye after she had signed with a new record label she actually specifically raps about how you know the focus was not on her rap and her music but um you know rumors that her you know her nudes were being leaked uh that this is what people were interested mm. in and this kind of online harassment and bullying yeah. unfortunately we see it a lot with women who are and especially women celebrities so yeah that was unfortunate but at least she's you know gotten some i mean now she's gotten some positive attention and she's you know traveling yeah. uh touring in india and um even voicing a bollywood song which is pretty cool Yeah, I think I saw her recently with one of the Bollywood stars. Salman Khan. Salman Khan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And um I first came across her cover on TikTok where there have been hundreds of covers of these songs okay. in all kinds of um South Asian languages from Tamil, Malayalam, Nepali, Bangla, and even Devahi. Um do you guys have a favorite cover of the song? Mm, I can't say that I have a f- favorite cover. I kind of just like that everyone's taking it and doing their own language version like you said Shweta. Yeah. I think mm. that's really cool. Although actually there has been a parody which has been imitating um several of our politicians singing it oh, which is kind really? of funny. I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that that's went viral. Cool. Like there's one I think it's basically the president, the prime minister and um Ranil if i'm not wrong okay. who are like singing it so that that's been, that was quite funny um but yeah that i guess that would be my favorite yeah so i actually know i mean again favorite cover so if shubanga had done a cover i think by default that would have been <laughs> our favorite cover like forever so uh but i love the um, the rowdy baby mashup that was done that was super by far mm. i don't know whether you guys came across that Yeah, I, re- I heard that that one was uh, got a lot of like, you know, traction as well. Yeah. So I have a question for you guys. So from Sri Lanka, who would you bet to go viral next out of our current crop of artists? Oh, out of our out of artists. I mean, when you say viral, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. the most it's really difficult to predict because the exactly. wildest things like our po- politicians say the wildest things, so it could literally be anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think we've we've been viral so many times our parliament. <laughs> Remember the book throwing incident? Yeah, we've yeah. been viral so many yeah. times. 
most recently, I guess for just like uh like food emergency and things yeah. like that, but also for like absolutely insane things that happen yeah. here. Um, so I I mean artists. So let's <laughs> from Sri yeah. Lanka's current crop of artists. Hmm. I I don't know. I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to say that it would be another Sri Lankan artist that would like get a lot of traction in a positive way. Okay, let me throw some names around. How about Omaria? I mean, that would be awesome. I love her voice. Yeah. Her voice is great. But we do have a lot of like talented rappers who have been kind of, you know, their songs have been getting some attention within Sri Lanka. Yeah. I personally really like uh, Drill Team. Uh, yeah, yeah. Their lyrics Drill aren't team. always, you know, the most... Um, but they they rap about a lot of like interesting like social mm. issues like Johanni covered Deviange Bare, which is one of their songs which talks about gambling mm. and debt. Um, I kind of like uh, Jaiva Jaima Venuma, which I listen to mm. whenever I after I read the news. Mm. That's that's my go to song mm. to just listen to <laughs> to mm. channel the frustration. And there's quite a lot of songs like that which um, from yeah. like new artists who kind of speak about a similar frustration with corruption and things which i think are really good so i would like for them to go viral you know it would mm. be cool if people were, went and like explored sri lankan music um after yohani yeah. and actually there was this post that went viral saying um which was like a comment on another musician i think ritma viravardhana's music right. video saying hi i'm from india and i'm here after seeing watching Manike Make oh, yeah, so yeah. people are like oh will people like try to explore different artists after this mm. uh, that would be really cool if you know more of our artists got attention after this so we'll see shall we move on to our recommendations yeah um so my recommendation this this month is uh, an interesting paper by uh, this historian uh, from Berkeley called Vanessa Ogle who's written a paper on well She's been working on what she calls offshore capitalism. So basically the history of the creation of these tax havens that have been in news so much, you know, last several weeks. Um, it's a paper called Funk Money, the end of empires, the expansion of tax havens and decolonization as an economic and financial event. So basically what she's doing is she's kind of looking at how, you know, in the years, kind of in the decades following decolonization, there was a kind of money panic among largely white settlers, businessmen, and officials uh, that had investment in the colonies um, and that were distrustful of the newly kind of independent nations. Um, so they started to liquidate their assets and move, you know, the, the capital out of the colonial world, which then she link, she argues is kind of uh, linked to the creation or, or expansion of some of these tax havens. Um, so what we're seeing today is actually in some ways a uh, you know, continuation of a longer kind of post 1950s 1960s history um so i think that's an interesting thing to read right now yeah my recommendation would be scratches on celluloid which is directed by vindya bodhpitiya and uh, timothy cooper it's a film which looks at cinema halls in lahore and jaffna as spaces of resilience amid insurgency war and infrastructural breakdown uh, what I found particularly interesting about it is that, you know, uh, I didn't realize how these uh, smaller cinemas kind of continued even during the worst of Sri Lanka's kind of civil war. 
But what I found really interesting was how there was this exchange between, you know, actors and actresses between uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka and how, you know, they would, uh, Sri Lankans would often fly to Pakistan and vice versa and shoot films here to kind of have a different backdrop um, for their movies, which I didn't know. And I found that really interesting. So if you're interested in um, cinema, I would suggest checking that out. And my recommendation for this month is anthropologist Noanika Mathur's new book titled Crooked Cats, Beastly Encounters in the Anthropocene. Um, she builds on 15 years of research across India and she ro- locates a series of Marty species encounters to ask new questions about how stories of crooked cats, which is a term she uses for big cats that prey on humans or other cats that have gone off the straight path, um, she uses these stories to kind of deepen our understanding of the climate crisis and opens out the debates on the Anthropocene. Because often scientific work dictates how we understand human-animal relations and the increase in what is kind of problematically termed human-animal conflict has taken a particular form with policy and conservationist voices taking a lead in it, what this book does is it presents a different story by engaging with knowledge practices that are kind of usually kept separate from one another and explores what happens to our understanding of um, human and big cat relationships um, and also broader subjects like species extinction and the climate crisis when we center voices and narratives that are ignored in discussions about the future of life on Earth. So I highly recommend this book because it's not only a timely read, but it's a really kind of sharp and creative piece of ethnographic writing. That's great, Shweta. And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Uh, do head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.